Are there any questions about the material of last week? I wasn't here, so tell me the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry. Last week, I gave you guys a fervorino on the importance of not being of, of not of not missing church and Sunday school. That's why I have to go to confession today. Oh my goodness! Look at that. A little finger puppet. Clearly, it must be understood. Not that they clearly, that they, not that they clearly understand it. Yeah, clearly, it must be understood. But at the same time, being prophetic, it also must be understood in terms of the future events. Chris Lemons was endeavoring to make that point last week. Right. So I'm just making a very simple thing. So you almost dismissed the term apocalyptic literature. I did not. Almost, almost. It sounded no, like no. I said apocalyptic literature is not a literature distinct from prophetic. It's a branch of prophetic literature. Right, but contemporary scholarship says there's prophecy and there's apocalyptic. No, no, no. That won't stand up to scrutiny. The apocalyptic literature always calls itself prophetic. Right, but then you can emphasize the apocalyptic aspect of this type of prophetic Yes, you, you do that. But you do that, but you do that by exegeting the text. Right. Take the take the prophecy of the, the, the book, the prophetic book of Isaiah. When I was taking my entrance exam, I think they gave me this question on an entrance exam. At San Anselmo. The entrance exam, by the way, was in Latin. In fact, all of the, all of the exams at St. Anselmo were in Latin. One of the questions they asked me on the entrance exam in order to get into the school <laughs> was to discuss the structure of the book of Isaiah. So I talked about the first and 39 chapters, which have special relevance to the 8th century. Chapters 40 through 55, which seem to be date, seem to have at least as their, their background, the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. And then the last 11 chapters, which appear to be post-exilic. And I let it go there. But if they need more information, they can ask me. The professor said, "Would you put all? Would you put all of chapters one through thirty-nine in the eighth century?" I said, "Procol dubido non. <laughs> Without doubt, not." Okay. I said, "Chapters twenty-two through twenty-five are apocalyptic." Which means it's later, it's a further development. But so I and, and he said, Ah, Benny, molto Benny, okay, and that was it. Okay. Then he passed me out of the New Testament man. Okay. What did he ask me? 
He asked me to reconcile the visit, Paul's visit to Jerusalem between Galatians and the Acts of the Apostles. How do I reconcile those texts? It was a, it was a really interesting, a very interesting entrance exam. Wow. exam. This would be to show that I was worthy to study theology. <laughs> so I'm, the, I'm aware of the thing. I'm, 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 well, I'm clearly aware of uh, for example, <laughs> similarity, similarity to prophetic literature. You didn't mention Daniel, for example, which in my mind would be just immediately. Da- Daniel, well, I wouldn't think of Daniel so much. I mean, I suppose I should. I would more, more, be more uh, likely to, to think of uh, to think of Ezekiel. You, you would think of Daniel. I, I guess because so many of the themes in Revelation come from Daniel. Yeah. I mean, he all these animals and stuff, they come rolling out of Daniel right into... Oh, I know that. But uh, I am not so disposed to put Daniel in apocalyptic, though. I'm disposed to put Daniel in farce. What? In farce and melodrama. Farce. <laughs> uh, there's there's certain there's certain books post exilic books, late books, where I see all the components of farce and melodrama. Last night, last night I started a series of sermons. It's going to be run on for a couple of months. A series of sermons on the Book of Esther, for example. So we started <coughs> Esther last night, and I'll continue it on Wednesdays and on Saturdays, for as long as it takes to get through the Book of Esther. So why am I preaching on Esther? Because I'm writing a commentary on Esther, and this makes it two, two birds. I killed, I killed two, two birds with one stone, or one bird, two stone. What else? I bet. Uh, Is it our annual commentary on Esther? No. <laughs> But you've got you've got in Esther, in Daniel, and in Judith. You've got you've got what I think of as tongue-in-cheek literature. Oh. Uh, is my daughter here? There she is. Oh, uh, you, well, you, you you specialize in tongue-in-cheek humor. But I, re- I remember, though, e- even as a little girl, how she she would spot she would spot any point of of irony, anything to do with irony. You know, I remember first time I watched the uh, I watched Casablanca with you. Okay, remember the the the, uh, the Claude Rains character is always saying, "Go out and round up the usual suspects." <laughs> Go out and round up the usual suspects. Okay. At the last, where he shoots the German officer, the, the Gestapo man, he says, go out and round up twice as many usual suspects. <laughs> well, Katzen saw right away. She's about four, I think, she says. A little older. Were you older than that? Okay. She said, if there's twice as many, they couldn't be usual. <laughs> she, she spotted that, you know. But these, these, these really exotic things that Nebuchadnezzar does, and he has, runs through the entire list, I mean, it is clearly satire. I mean, he's, he, all the sat traps and the provincials and the governors and the judges and the generals. The sat was. The sat was. Okay. 
then, okay. then he addresses them. All you governors and satraps, <laughs> runs through the whole thing again. Okay. Um, the book of Daniel is full of this. Well, you're supposed to be laughing. I mean, that's right. Particularly if the list is repeated three or four times, you know. When you shall hear the, the sound of the music of, and he runs through about six instruments or seven instruments, you know I mean? um, And this, this, this first chapter of, of Esther is a scream. What we, had, what we had last night, I was reading it, and no one was laughing. I thought, God, this is so funny. How can you possibly not laugh at this? This is extremely funny. Where this guy holds a party that lasts 180 days. <laughs> And he's got all the people of all the provinces who are governing the provinces. He's taking all the governments away. And they're having a party for 180 days. You'd think it was our Congress. <laughs> um, and then, wait till this coming Wednesday when he invites Queen Vashti to come in to the party. And she won't come into the party. He says, well, just for that, you don't have to come to any more parties. <laughs> Uh, where he forbids her to enter court as a punishment for refusing to enter court. <laughs> uh, there's where I, I tend to put Daniel. I tend Daniel that guy. But it's, it's humor. It's satire. They keep her, when they start showing people like Ahasuerus, we don't know if that's Artaxerxes the first, Artaxerxes the second. It doesn't make any difference. The Jews had no regard for any any Persian princes. Um, you're making fun of them. When Nebuchadnezzar, he puts up this stupid statue. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've convinced you or not. Well, it wasn't my opinion. Obviously, I'm not just a you know, biblical scholar. I've just seen that happen before when you read about these sort of things. They sort of lump together a title of a well, they do, but my, my, my problem with contemporary biblical scholarship, one of my thousand problems with contemporary biblical scholarship is uh, too many Germans. Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Uh, oh, Greeks? Brits. Oh, Brits. Well, they're, they're, Brits, they're Brits that are studied in Germany. Okay. Um, they, make too many, they make too many distinctions. They make too many distinctions, you know. Uh, <laughs> German Jesuits. Uh, one thing I did want to mention is right. I forgot to do it upstairs. I'll mention it now. Tonight on Father Evans' program, you know the priest who does the the call-in show every other week at seven o'clock. I'm the guest tonight. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> is it live? Is it live? It's a celebrity roast. 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 Please, too much Esther. Um, it's normally a call-in show, uh, and uh, it's not tonight. It's not. But people can also. You don't have to call in during the show. You can call in anytime and leave a recorded question. 
and then they'll take it the next week. Well, this past week, they had a call-in question, which they recorded. Of course, they played it, and it's, 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 I'm talking to him in Colorado, and John Maddox is over in Indiana putting all this together in, in, on a regular radio, you know, so it sounds just real smooth, you know. <laughs> Glad you asked that question. You know, this is, uh, somebody had called in and asked about how seriously to take the biblical accounts of creation since they conflict so much with the positions of modern science. And uh, I, I answered that question wisely, I think. Uh, <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> With me, not wisely, at least emphatically. Yeah. Emphatically. And I... I uh, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really bad speculation among Orthodox. Some of it will last on Ancient Faith Radio. So I I told them there has to be an Adam and Eve. The human race has to come from one couple. It has to. Otherwise, we are there's no biological unity. And if there's no biological unity within the human race itself, there is no biological unity. If that is not the case, then that, that finishes off the Council of Chalcedon in 451. There was not a nature for him to assume. If, if you and I were all descended from different apes, and apparently that's what some things, some folks think. Okay? You and I, you know, all I know is, that's true, I was descended a much better ape than you were. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I talk about it, I, and if, I I was pretty emphatic. I do believe that the that the uh, the gospel will stand or fall with the historicity the historicity of uh, of what's recorded in the first chapters of Genesis. That does not mean that it, co- it corresponds to what we call history. And certainly the uh, the seven day the six days of creation. Well, that, that fits into a completely different category. There were no human beings around to watch this happening. It isn't like God set aside a cub reporter who sat someplace and watched this all this break down. Um, that, of course, I, I, believe that, I believe that that is interpreting creation from inside ourselves as being part of creation because the human being is the thinking part of creation. Contemporary Contemporary education seems to quantify everything. So everything's observable, documentable, it's outside us, and so forth. That's not the best way to know reality. But no, that's not the best way to know reality at all. The best way to know reality is to be part of reality. We are reality reflecting on itself. That's the, the only place where we know the ding and zish, the thing in itself, is ourselves. We go inside. We ourselves are... are are bearers of the powers of the cosmos. We are the cosmos reflecting upon itself. That's what's involved, I believe, in that, that opening chapter of, of Genesis. Um, anyway, I, I don't know if I will listen to it tonight. I'm not sure I can stand to. Because then I hung after it was over, and then maybe they refuted me afterwards. I don't know. Although knowing Father... Father uh, but he asked me a lot of questions about the parish. Okay, lots of parish. I said, you know, we got we got people who really 
well advanced in the Christian faith. I mean, take Jerry Curry, for example. <laughs> take him. Take him. <laughs> but I was, I, I was not prepared to answer questions about the parish, but I, I said some nice things about you guys. Uh, so maybe you might want to listen. I think it's 7 o'clock. Um, Kevin Allen is not doing those shows every other Sunday now. We've got a new fellow on, Father Barnabas. And I knew Father Barnabas, but his name was Chuck. And Chuck was a, a big man in, in uh, uh, evangelical radio. Evangelical radio. And he, was a, he worked for Moody, mm-hmm. and he was, he was a commentary on, on Moody and so forth. Chuck has now been received in the Orthodox Church and ordained wow. as, as Father Barnabas. Wow. So his, he's going to have next Sunday. Uh, John Maddox, John Maddox knew him. In fact, I think John Maddox is one who introduced me to him many years ago. Chuck has been to this parish, but it's so long ago you wouldn't remember. Now, aside from Sasha, has anybody else got any questions on the material last time? Uh, I have one other previous. Yes, sir. Uh, or shall we say a comment previous sermon where you talked about the uniqueness of Christ and how we depend on the religion depends on his person unlike other religions. That could be almost any almost any sermon I gave couldn't it? I hope you're not going to challenge the thesis. Well I'm going to I'm going to modify it in a bit in the sense that Every good lie must contain a fair amount of truth, or nobody can believe it. Actually, that is that is so forms, that is so true to remember that. The the most popular forms of most religions are actually those that have the elements that most resemble Christianity. The most popular form of Hinduism yeah. is the one which has a god who in incarnates. Most form the the, the the Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana has persons who are still around to... That's right, to intercede for us. In, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good point, Phil. That's a very good point. The popular form of Judaism, at, well, until the middle of uh, last century, uh, was that which had your your, your rebbies, mm-hmm. uh, who were considered, you know, as conduits. I mean, these folks ought to be able to relate to Christianity quite easily. Yeah, <laughs> that, Phil, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I remember becoming aware of that when I was quite young and read a book called The Dernier des Justes, the last, the last of the Just. It's about the, the Jewish tradition of a series of just men throughout history. And the last one dies in the, at, 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 uh, in, in the Holocaust, in the concentration camp. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a good point, Phil. That's a good point. Uh, in, in contemporary comparative religion, there's a, great dis- there's a great disposition to make Jesus just one of those guys. So Jesus is, is one of those. Um, okay. Are we ready to take on the book of Revelation? Yes. Okay. The last week, I ended by speaking of the note of immediacy that sounded several times in the course of the apocalypse. <clears throat> The book of Revelation never talks about things that are going to happen in the great, great distant future. It doesn't. 
It doesn't, you know, it does speak about the thousand-year reign, but that is about as much as you can get for a distance. Everything is going to be happened in Taki, quickly take quickly take place. Haidei Genestai in Taki. It's going to happen immediately. John's readers certainly did not think that the events predicted in this book were to come to pass centuries in the future. They pertained, rather, to the here and now of their time. That same expression, things that must take place, must, D-E-I in Greek, D-E-I, day, must, take place shortly. Ha, day, genestai, must take place, and taki, quickly. It's found again, it's found in the first chapter of the book, found in the last chapter of the book. In John's visions, the perceived time is not far off. On the contrary, he tells us, Hogar kairos engis, the time is near. That appears in chapter 1, again in chapter 22. In fact, as I mentioned last time, and I'll repeat this for Gary's sake, the immediate context of the book of Revelation is not difficult to detect. The seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in chapters 2 and 3 show that the book is essentially a prophetic call to repentance in the face of an in the face of an pardon me I've got a frog in the in the face of an impending and unexpected persecution of Christians by elements of the Roman state the ensuing chapters starting chapter 4 describe this coming persecution in a series of scenes arranged according to the number seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of plagues. Each scene in each section appears to describe exactly what is described in the corresponding scene of the corresponding sections. Compare the first trumpet the first with the first seal and the first bowl of plagues. The second, the second trumpet, the second seal, the second bowl of plagues, and so forth. All of these scenes depict a summons to repentance. Thus, the book of Revelation is a long prophecy in the sense of a repeated warning. Now, the first Christians, by and large, reflected to know what the things meant because they were expected to do something about it so the book of Revelation is not a treasure of information about things to come in the distant future it's a very practical book calling for a very practical response as a prophetic warning the book of Revelation may be compared to other parts of the New Testament. For example, the scene in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, where the prophet Agabus stood up, and I'm quoting here, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which happened in the day of Claudius Caesar. Okay. So Agabus gets up in the assembly and gives this prophecy. If we follow the book of Deuteronomy and there wasn't a plague, well, we, what should we do with Agabus? 
stoned him to death. I remember back in the Episcopal Church, I would have sometimes somebody would get up in the middle of the service and give a prophecy. It usually was not sufficiently specific that we could stone them to death, but that's what I wanted to do. When Agabus, when Agabus gave this prophecy, it was not a prediction of some distant catastrophe because you can't do anything about a distant catastrophe. It's always the prophecy has immediacy. You're supposed to do something about this. It was rather a proximate matter about the, the, the Christians at Antioch could actually do something about. There's going to be a famine, so take up a collection for the poor. But that's got to remind you of something of, say, Joseph's dreams seven lean years the earliest Christians seem to have relied a great deal on such prophecies which serve as admonitions about impending events that affected the church in some way this is not gone from the church not by a long shot before the events of 1917 with the overthrow of the czar and the, uh, and the persecution of the church there were Russian mystics who have been predicting that for 50 years. You know, the, pro- the, pro- the, the gift of prophecy was very strong in the Russian church. There were people, spirit-filled people, who saw exactly what was going to happen. Or, well, maybe not exactly, they, but they saw it clearly. And they spoke to the church, be ready. It's going to be a terrible thing. And, of course, they were widely laughed at. This is a very Christian nation. We have a Christian czar. Oh. Uh, this is the, we, are, we are a holy people. This is Mother Mother Russia, Holy Russia. Nothing's going to happen here. Well, the, the true, true sign of holiness was that prophetic spirit that kept speaking all through the 19th century and prophesying what was going to happen very soon in the 20th. Likewise, the same Agabus appears in Acts 21, verses 10 and 11. The second time he appears. He warns the Apostle Paul of his imminent arrest by the Jews and his handing over to the Gentiles. We know the names of other individual prophets. Judas and Silas of Jerusalem in Acts 15.31. There are further references to anonymous prophets elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, a very striking image, pardon me, a very striking instance of such a prophetic warning was left us by Eusebius of Caesarea. He tells us in book three of his ecclesiastical history, book three, chapter five, section three. He tells us that at the time of Vespasian's conquest of the Holy Land, here I quote, time of Vespasian's conquest of the Holy Land. Vespasian comes in in in, uh, 68. At that time, says Eusebius, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle, kata tini kresmon, according to a, an oracle, a certain article, kata tini kresmon, given by revelation, di apocalypsios, to certain approved men there before the war. What? to leave the city and to abide in a certain town of Berea called Pella. Now it's because of that 
when Jerusalem fell to Vespasian in the year 70, there were no Christians in the city. In fact, the Jews blamed the Christians. You abandoned us. Before the trouble ever started, you cleared town. You're out. You didn't suffer anything. Now, why did the Christians flee? According to Eusebius, Katatin Kresmon, according to a certain article given by Revelation, the Apocalypsios, they were told to leave. Wouldn't that be nice the next time a catastrophe hits Chicago, you know, that the Lord should speak to Jerry and he and tell he tell us this. this. You, you all die. Nobody would believe. I hope we would believe you. Well, he's always crying wolf. Now, because of this prophetic warning that they received, no Christians perished during the two-year siege and the downfall to Jerusalem to Titus in the summer of the year 70. Now, in the case of the book of Revelation, John's apocalyptic admonition, did you hear that I used the word apocalyptic? Did you hear me? Okay. John's apocalyptic admonition is not to flee, but to repent. This theme appears repeatedly in the letters of the seven churches. Repent and do the former works or else I will come to you quickly in Taki and remove your lamp from its place unless you repent. Chapter 2, verse 5. Repent or else I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Chapter 2, verse 16. And I will give her time to repent of her fornication. And she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Chapters 20, verses 21-22. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Chapter 3, verse 3. As many as I love, I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Chapter 3, verse 19. Six of the seven Asian churches are commanded to repent. The exception is the church at Philadelphia. City of brotherly love. The church of Philadelphia is simply called, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one take away your crown. It's the only one of the churches that's not called to repentance. Is Philadelphia. From the last time I was in Philadelphia, it's time that they be called to repentance. <laughs> A little humor there. And it, I thought it was funny. The holiest city in America. <laughs> <laughs> I have a prophecy for I, I have a prophecy for Philadelphia. Okay. Where the corpse is, there will the eagles be gathered together. (laughs) 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 The traditional view is that the coming crisis envisaged in the book of Revelation 
This is the traditional view. That the crisis envisaged in this book was the expected persecution of Christians toward the end of the reign of the Emperor Domitian. Domitian was emperor from 81 to 96. The traditional view dates the book of Revelation from that period toward the end of that long reign of Domitian. Our earliest witnesses for this view, in fact, my earliest witness for this view, was a churchman intimately familiar with the Asian churches. He was, in fact, an Asian okay, from Smyrna. His name was, was uh, Arrhenius. He was the disciple of Polycarp of Smyrna. Arrhenius became Bishop of Lyon. He records this view in, the, in his book Against the Heresies in Book 5. Now, later and more recent students of the Bible have challenged this traditional view by suggesting that the impending crisis reflected in the book was at least partly the persecution of Nero in the mid-60s, which we put it 30 years earlier. As far as we know from primary sources, however, there was no general persecution of Christians under Nero, as far as we know. The Christians at Rome only uh, were given a hard time, not the rest of the empire. I do admit, however, that some of the imagery of the book of Revelation does seem to reflect themes associated with Nero. But keep in mind, from pagan literature, we know that Domitian was called Nero Redivivus. Nero revived. Because okay. he reminded, okay. it remind, his reign reminded people of Nero. I do, however, on the whole, believe that the traditional opinion is the correct one. Father Boimard, in his uh, commentary on, uh, on the book of Revelation, somebody told me recently that's been translated into English, which I think is kind of interesting, because he wrote that book, I think, in the 50s. And somebody would translate it now, this is later, into English. It shows what a good book it is. He also did the, uh, the notes on Revelation in La Bible de Jerusalem, which I remember reading long before it was in English, he says he believes the book was written twice. That it was written during the time of Nero and then revised time of Domitian. That makes it awfully, awfully complicated. Um, hard to preach on it that way. In a deeper sense, nonetheless, the specific setting of this historical question is not ultimately decisive. The book itself sufficiently testifies to its purpose which was to prepare several of the ancient Christian churches, those in Asia Minor, for an impending persecution from the official Roman authorities. What these churches needed to do chiefly was to repent. As a work of historical prophecy, therefore, the book of Revelation is an exhortation to repent. It is not a handbook of eschatological uh, curiosity. It does not contain new information, as it were, about events leading up to the end of time. That's not what it's about. It is not a work of cryptography, a kind of eschatological Rorschach test. 
It is a waste of time and therefore a failure in stewardship because nothing is more precious than time. It's a waste of time to treat the book of Revelation as a symbolic, coded narrative about human history until the final ages of the world. And whole industries are based on that. Libraries of books have been based on that. Television series have been based on that. The book of Revelation provides not the slightest information about specific political or cosmic events taking place in any century except the first century, the lifetime of its first readers. So if you think of that eschatologically, it's become Oh, that was cute. <laughs> this is one of those days I'm glad people don't know Greek. <laughs> Yet some of us do. You have to figure that one out. Yeah. Children seem to be coming down. Is, is, is it time? No, I just think certain ages we Okay. Nobody rang a bell. That's why I wondered. Is anybody signed to read it? Ring a bell? Yeah. Oh, oh, Stephen, you're on top of it. Good. I'll wait until I hear from you, son. Indeed, to treat the book of Revelation as providing esoteric information about the final times of history is to violate another biblical mandate directed against such speculation. In one of his last words, immediately prior to his ascension to heaven, Jesus admonished us. It is not for you to know the times and seasons. Okay, hear that? It's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Of that day and that hour, he reminds us, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is returning. Jesus says this over and over again. Don't worry about that. Don't speculate about this. This is none of your business. But, But certainly... We can know the year, month, and week. <laughs> I mean, just by reading it. It's all in there, so obviously. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. You're, you're, sure, you're surely right on that point. <laughs> Somebody call 911. <laughs> this theme was taken up by the Apostle Paul in his very first epistle. His very first epistle. First Thessalonians, first lines of the New Testament. But concerning times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, it would be nice if I knew when the thief was coming so I could pay my, my, my uh, security system that month. <laughs> we should presume, therefore, that the book of Revelation did not become part of the scriptures for the purpose of inciting a curiosity which the rest of Holy Scripture warns us not to indulge. I'm ready then to begin... What is the book of Revelation? I'm going to describe it as a work of liturgical prophecy. 
work of liturgical prophecy. I'm going to start with the word liturgical and then go to the word prophecy. But I'm not going to do that this morning because it gets very involved. So we'll do it next week when we'll have three new baptized members of the parish. Glory to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen.